I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Arthur Kellerman, a policy analyst at RAND and an emergency medicine physician. Dr. Kellerman has co-authored a perspective article on lessons from the Boston response to the Marathon bombing. Dr. Kellerman, in your article, you point out that there were a number of factors that were not under the control of Boston's medical responders, but that favored the provision of rapid and effective care for the victims of that bombing. Which factors do you think were most critical? Well, in terms of event severity, uh, as terrible as the bombings were, they could have been much worse. The devices were relatively crude and of relatively low yield compared to those that are often detonated in the Middle East. Uh, so the the magnitude of the blast reduced the casualty count as high as it still was. It could have been a lot worse. And the other important factor were that the devices were placed out of doors. There's now ample evidence that when bombings are carried out in a closed space, inside a building, a subway tunnel, a bus, a train, the walls of the structure amplify and reverberate the blast and create more severe injuries. In terms of response, there were a number of factors that played into the favor of the rescuers. It was race day. There were prepositioned fire, police, and EMS personnel. Boston's bystanders responded with class. Instead of going crazy and racing everywhere, they, many of them pivoted almost moments after the blast and began rendering assistance. Uh, EMS in Boston has long performed well. They did an excellent job of routing and distributing casualties. Because it was Boston, and given the location of the attack, it was in the center of a complex with a rich resources in terms of trauma centers relative to even many cities and certainly more rural areas. It was 3 p.m., so you had the day shift and the evening shift physically in the hospital at the moment of the blast. And the, the city and the hospitals had done a good job of preparing, but the timing the nature of the devices, their placement, and the fact that you had pre-positioned resources all acted in favor of the rescuers and ultimately gave the victims a much better shot at survival and helped attribute a remarkably low fatality count for such an event. You speculated that since it was a holiday, the city's operating rooms probably weren't running at full capacity. But in fact, prospective authors from the Boston hospitals indicate that the ORs were booked and most emergency departments were also full. So was the key that they had capacity on the hospital wards or in the case of psychiatric patients that there were other hospitals to which they could be moved so that the EDs and the ORs could be emptied quickly to make room for the bombing victims? The most important aspect is being able to rapidly open up your emergency apartment your operating rooms, and within a matter of hours, your critical care units. And those tend to be the most bottlenecked locations in any hospital at any point in time. So one of the factors that I think really is a tribute to Boston's hospitals were how quickly they grasped the nature of the event and how aggressively they moved to clear their emergency departments for incoming casualties and to get operating room space opened. If they had not made that decisive action, it would have been a much more difficult situation for them. So that decisive action is critical. Uh, Often the most important decisions, particularly in a sudden event like a bombing, are made before the first victim comes in the door. And my hat's off to Boston's hospitals in this case. 
In that regard, you, you clarified that Boston had, had planned carefully and had drilled repeatedly for such an event well before it happened. Can you walk us through some of the key elements of that kind of planning? Well, the first thing to understand, and very importantly, are that terrorist bombings, tornadoes, earthquakes, other sudden what I call kinetic events are both qualitatively and quantitatively different than many of the disasters that hospitals drill or prepare for. When you have a flood, a hurricane, an epidemic, you have warning it's coming, you, you have an opportunity to prepare, you can sort of pre-position, uh, and the event typically ramps up over hours or in some cases even days. But in these events, like the Boston bombing, it is a sudden surprise. You have no time to prepare a ramp up. You may have just a few minutes before the first casualties roll in the doors. So the most critical actions in many instances are in that lull before the storm. When the scene is chaotic, units are responding, the casualty count is often highly inaccurate and may be wildly inflated or undercounted. That's when you have to be moving as aggressively and decisively as when you're fully engaged. That's an important premise that drills that are properly designed teach and that staff who take drills seriously can master and be much better when the time comes. You want to be responding from muscle memory, not searching for a manual and trying to find if it's on page 25 or page 48. There were a number of critical steps that were taken, and these were described in short form in an essay that my co-author, Dr. Kobe Pelleg of Tel Aviv University, and I wrote a few years ago and is cited in the Perspective article. But a far more authoritative source, and one I'd recommend all of your listeners pull up on the web, is a CDC monograph entitled, In a Moment's Notice, Surge Capacity for Terrorist Bombings. It walks through ER, operating room, blood bank, radiology, other logistical issues that hospitals need to consider and that EMS needs to consider to prepare for these events. It's very easy to find and download off the CDC's website. Something the Israelis learned years ago and we would do well to study is that if you practice and become really good at managing a bombing, the core skills that you need to do that, the decision-making, the preparation, the decisive action will serve you in good stead for any disaster that you might have to encounter. And in this era of terrorism, it's quite likely that hospitals will deal with a terrorist bombing and never have to contend with the far more exotic WMD-type events that we spent much of the last decade preparing for. So the basics matter, and doing them well matters, and good disaster plans emphasize that fact. One of those basics might be teamwork, which was clearly essential in this response, both within hospitals and in the overall emergency response system. What sorts of preparations should be made across institutions to ensure that teams can form quickly and then collaborate effectively? Teamwork is absolutely critical. You can't get through a busy night in an emergency room or an OR as a cowboy or a cowgirl. You certainly can't do it in a mass casualty event. Disaster plans should ideally be straightforward, simple, clear, and very easy to follow. Uh, I've often said that the likelihood that a disaster plan in a hospital will work is inversely related to the thickness of the document. The more complicated, the more tabs it has, the less likely anyone will read it, understand it, or even refer to it when the time comes. 
basic elements should form the foundation, and people should practice together not just within their typical group or tribe, surgeons with surgeons, nurses with nurses, but across disciplines and across units. Uh, the best drills are actually smaller real-world events. We often don't pay enough attention to handling how we responded to a three-vehicle car crash, for example, how we responded to a bus crash that turned out to be a minor event rather than a major event. It's those no-notice instances when we are called to go beyond the normal trauma response or the normal emergency response that really begin to stress the staff but also emphasize how well they're working together. And so those natural exercises can be very helpful. Scripted events, which are the typical approach most American hospitals take, are certainly better than nothing, but they tend to be dress rehearsals. Everyone has plenty of time to prepare. The, the most senior or the leadership people are all pre-positioned with time off from their workday. A far better approach is to plan and to use no-notice exercises. My colleagues at RAND recently devised a prototype no-notice exercise that actually doesn't disrupt hospital operations but can challenge your emergency operations center, your incident commanders, key decision makers, and be over and done and documented in less than two hours. Uh, that prototype is, has been completed. We've pilot tested it in several major trauma centers around the country and have had initial discussions with Joint Commission about refining it and hopefully offering it to America's hospitals. I can tell you from having participated in these pilot developments, it is a totally different experience than a typical dress rehearsal drill and something every American hospital should consider and regularly use. In their perspective article about the response at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Goralnik and Gates also point to the specific experience of several individuals in the hospital, for example, in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. What role do you think that sort of individual experience plays in these situations? It's certainly helpful. Veterans typically respond better than rookies in any uh, situation because they've worked under stress before. They've had, they have some background or perspective on the event. But I think perhaps more helpful over time probably in Boston and certainly in the country, is the collective sharing of experience and lessons learned as our veteran military health personnel, the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the medics, and others return to the United States from experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, their collective knowledge of not just how to handle bombing victims, but multi-casualty events, the surgical techniques that were developed, such as damage control surgery and the greater use of external fixation in severely complex orthopedic uh, cases, uh, the use of tourniquets in pre-hospital settings, a number of remarkable innovations that the military health system has championed out of necessity in the past 12, 13 years are ultimately going to advance emergency and trauma and disaster care in this country every bit as decisively as our battlefield experience in Vietnam and in Korea did for earlier generations. So I think it's that collective expertise being brought home that really will make a difference over time. A third perspective article 
laments the fact that U.S. health departments, hospitals, EMS systems are facing severe budget constraints, owing in great part to cuts in federal funding. And those constraints will undermine planning, training, practice activities. Do you see this as a serious problem now? It's an enormous problem, and it's been getting worse for years. Ironically, even when we had that flood of federal funding after September 11th, much of those resources were tightly earmarked and dedicated to WMD and particularly to bioterrorism. Local health departments and preparedness planners weren't allowed to use the money to do broad level preparedness. They had to keep it very tightly focused in programmatic areas. So in some respects, while it clearly helped, it didn't help as much as it might have. But now we're seeing a rapid erosion of core funding for public health, core funding for EMS, and even core funding for hospitals, emergency and trauma care operations. And I equate this to pulling planks out of a bridge. You can get away with it for a while. People can compensate for a while. But if you hollow the structure out to a critical point and then put it under a load, the entire apparatus can collapse. And all that will come out of that is grief and calamity. It's equally dangerous to think that the daily business of hospital operations, keeping a hospital going, is more important than having that capacity for a major challenge. That's why too many hospitals allow their emergency departments to get gridlocked and bottlenecked with admitted patients because they're more concerned about keeping the high reimbursement, high margin elective cases flowing smoothly, and they're willing to back up the emergency room's admitted cases to allow those electives to get in ahead of them. Too many hospital boards put the purchase of a surgical robot or a new scanner higher on their capital list than they do a reliable and well-positioned generator. And that can create real problems for an entire community in a major event. So that preparedness really does have to be seen as part of the fundamental mission of any hospital in its relationship to the community and its role as part of our nation's health security. And perhaps the third threat, which is hard to imagine in light of number one, funding cuts, and number two, the daily demand, is complacency. I know too many hospital administrators that have blandly assured me over the years, don't worry about a crowded ER, don't worry about the fact that all our ERs are full, don't worry that every ICU bed is occupied. If we're challenged, my doctors and my nurses will rise to the occasion. That's total nonsense. You can't under-resource your medical staff. You can't under-prepare your medical staff and then expect that they will instantly, on no notice, in the heat of the moment, perhaps at 2 o'clock a.m. rather than 3 p.m., figure out what to do. That's a very dangerous and misleading assumption. We have to give our medical staffs, our EMS providers, uh, and the key people who are involved in preparedness at the community level, sufficient resources to do their jobs and sufficient opportunities to hone and refine their skills. You're not going to get a second chance. You, you write, in fact, that hospitals need to weave the threads of preparedness into their daily routine. So what exactly would that entail? There are several values that we really have to mainstream, I believe, in hospital operations. First, as you discussed earlier, is the focus on teamwork. The Red Sox didn't win the World Series because they just showed up or it was their turn. They practiced, they picked good personnel, they worked as a team, 
and they focused on results. Another key value in hospitals is understanding the critical importance of patient flow. Everybody should be moving through that system as efficiently and as effectively as possible. If a patient is discharged out of an inpatient bed and the floor nurse doesn't call housekeeping for two or three hours because it's getting close to the end of shift, and then housekeeping comes and cleans the bed and the next nurse doesn't call because she thinks or he thinks that if it's you know another hour or two, it'll be the next shift's problem after that. Admissions are backing up in the emergency department. It's inexcusable that there are hospitals in America today that'll have admitted patients in hallways of their ERs, in trauma bays, in exam rooms, and have empty inpatient beds upstairs because they simply aren't focusing adequately on patient flow. The same is true when you're considering how to balance electives, how you schedule your operating room cases. We can manage America's hospital resources far more efficiently and effectively than we do today. And there are tracking systems and uh, computer algorithms and other tools that allow hospital administrators, chiefs of service, and physician and nursing leadership to do that. A third issue is being aware of your resources. How many beds do you have right now? How many spare generators? What is the diversion status of hospitals in the community? It should be zero all the time. Are we adequately prepared? How did we do on the last drill? How did we do when we ran a no-notice drill? And ultimately, accountability. Again, I look to a country like Israel that has had to deal with more of these events quantitatively and qualitatively than the United States, fortunately, to date. They take a very no-nonsense approach to this. They have the medical staff of one hospital stage the drill in another hospital. They expect their hospitals to regularly share and report their critical care capacity, backup supplies, and how crowded or uncrowded their emergency departments do. The last part of a hospital that they will allow to back up and get congested with patients are their ERs. That tends to be the first unit of an American hospital that gets congested. These are very doable things. Remember, as much as we complain about how under-resourced we are in healthcare, we're using 18% of the nation's GDP and over $2.7 trillion a year. So this is not about lack of resources. It's about prioritization and choices. And we should prioritize life and death care and preparedness for threats to a community and to our nation higher than we currently do today. So what should other U.S. cities, perhaps without Boston's facilities, do to to be prepared for these kinds of mass casualty events? Well, the first thing they can do is not say, wow, Boston did pretty well. I'm sure we will too. Boston's success, the astonishingly low fatality count in this case, the swift evacuation of casualties, the way that they were distributed to different trauma centers so that no single hospital was overwhelmed with casualties. That wasn't happenstance. That was done because of thoughtful preparation, practice, and a commitment at a community level and at a service level to doing the right thing in the right way. Other hospitals can learn from that, can learn from Boston's success. They can and should monitor their surge capacity on a regular, continuous basis. They should be aware of emergency department crowding. I think it's interesting that Massachusetts a few years ago said, basically, we're not going to let people divert ambulances anymore. You have to be able to deal with incoming ambulances. And I think that has helped Boston to do a better job. 
Hospitals and communities need to be more serious about supporting their local EMS providers and giving them the opportunity to do drills and practice. And all of us throughout this country, urban communities and suburban and rural towns, need to do more to recognize how important bystanders are. They really are the first responders in any mass casualty event, whether it's a tornado in Joplin or an earthquake in California or a hurricane in Florida. It's your neighbor or you who will be the first responder. And so basic first aid skills, basic knowledge of what to do, I think should be an, an important part of citizenship in this country for all of us. And I think that the, the citizens at the race, the people who came back, stopped running, turned around, and returned to the scene were also fundamental to Boston's response. And then finally, sound plans, simply drawn, clearly communicated, and regularly practiced really make the difference, including, ideally, no-notice exercises. We do that, and it doesn't take a whole lot of time and effort. It can make all the difference. We should all hope that we will never have to have a response like we did in Boston. I was in Atlanta the night of Olympic Park. I know how surprising that can be uh, and how challenging those moments can be. But every community in America needs to be prepared to be a Boston. Thank you, Dr. Kellerman.